Hello, and welcome to Success Stories. I'm Kendra Hall, Chief Storytelling Officer at Success Magazine, and this is the podcast where we sit down with the brightest stars and the boldest thought leaders as they share their stories so you can create your own success story. I mean, what to say about today's story. I remember the day in May 2020 when I was first given the honor to help select 10 incredible women for the September-October 2020 issue of Success Magazine. And the first name I thought of was today's guest. I'll admit, it was a selfish choice. Uh, I really wanted to talk to her, to hear her story, and not to mention my daughter adores this guest and would forever think I was the coolest. But what started as a personal dream quickly transformed. Her story is for anyone who has ever faced adversity on their journey to success, for anyone who has felt the weight of their success, that it isn't just about them, it's about so much more. Her story is for anyone who has had the odds stacked against them and wonders if it's all too much. Or if you just want to sit back and hear what true grace and power sounds like, this story is for you. I am so honored to share today's guest with you, the cover of the September-October 2020 issue of Success Magazine, Misty Copeland. Misty Copeland is the most famous ballet dancer in the world today, with a story that is appreciated even by people who know nothing about dance. In 2015, she made history by becoming the first African-American female principal dancer in the 75-year history of the prestigious American Ballet Theater. She was named to the Times 100 list of the most influential people for 2015, as well as the Success Achievers of the Year list. She has since written several books, biographies, been at the center of a documentary about her career, and become a renowned speaker and spokesperson. But her story isn't just about breaking barriers. It's about hope. When she discovered ballet as a girl, Misty was living with her five siblings in a shabby motel room, sleeping on the floor. Within a year, she was a prodigy on a path to transcend dance. Misty, welcome to Success. We're so excited to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I've got to say, well, first, I have to tell you a short story. I, of course, heard about you for years. Um, And then I recently moved with my family to New York City, and my daughter started dancing in ballet. And so I knew we had to start going to the ballet. And so I would take her, my husband and I would go. We started watching a lot of ballet, which was beautiful. But I'll say it was last summer, right at the beginning of the summer, June. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And I saw that you were going to be dancing Swan Lake. And it was one of the last days of school. So for her like last day of school gift, we went to see you dance. Now, her bedtime is at the time that the show started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we only, poor thing, we only made it for the first, for the first act. But I remember we were sitting in the way back. I didn't know you were supposed to get tickets like years in advance and then just wait. <laughs> I didn't know the whole, I have a lot to learn. But I remember sitting in the very back of the theater and after watching a lot of ballet, seeing you move on that stage I thought to myself, I, I mean, I could feel it. And I thought, 
oh, <laughs> this is what it is. So thank you for that. She loved it. The, we will make it through an entire ballet <laughs> soon. <laughs> but I, I just had to tell you that I am so honored you're here. And I, I'm interested. So you heard all of those accolades. The first African-American woman to be promoted to principal dancer, a prodigy. You were on point in three months which usually it takes people like a decade to do. You're the author of at least two books. You have another one coming out in September, correct? We can talk about that. My fourth book coming out. That's your fourth book. Because there was, um, Firebird was in there too, right? And Ballerina Body as well. Okay. I know I was, and what was the, and then the fourth one. And then I have Bunheads coming out in September. That's the one. We'll talk. We'll make sure to talk about that. You 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 toured with Prince. That wasn't in the original. So so tell me this. But then we heard in your intro that it didn't. You didn't start at the top. So take us all the way back to when you were a little girl. Um, tell tell us about your beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, in what, in my eyes, you know, I thought was a very normal and typical upbringing of a, of a young person. Um, but, you know, I guess it's all, it's all um, your perspective, but, you know, it's all I knew. All I knew was moving. All I knew was changing schools, survival, living in different homes. Uh, just a lot of the time, my mother being single, a single parent. So it was a lot of struggling, but again, it was what was normal to me. Um, so, you know, I, I became a very, very introverted child because of the situations I grew up in. And I think that I just didn't want that to be um, known. I think as, as a young person, you're so used to that, you know, criticism and judgment from other kids. And so I, I just got really good at keeping my mouth closed and not sharing anything about myself. And it became just like a part of my identity. Um, and it wasn't until I discovered well, music was always a really big part of my household. And my mother trained professional, not professionally, but she trained in schools um, her, her whole childhood. She did ballet, tap, and jazz, and she was a professional cheerleader for the Kansas City Chiefs football team um, at a very young age. So I, I did have some awareness of like seeing her move around the house, but I'd never seen classical dance before, and I'd never heard classical music before the age of 13. Um, but it wasn't until I discovered uh, my, my response, my visceral response to hearing music was to move and was to create. And that was the first time I felt empowered in my life and felt like I had a voice and a way of expressing myself. So when at 13 years old, I was really pushed into taking this free ballet class, um, that was being offered at my local boys and girls club where I was uh, already a member, me and my five siblings were. And, um, there was a local ballet teacher that was looking for more diverse students that maybe didn't have the access or the means to be a part of that world. And I happened to be one of those students. And, um, I took my first ballet class on a basketball court there at the Boys and Girls Club. And it was from there that she told me, you know, I've never seen anyone that was as capable physically, emotionally, mentally, that could kind of piece all of this thing called ballet together. Um, and she took me in her school in full scholarship and I was on point within three months. I trained with her and lived with her and her family for three years so that I could get the uh, most intense training in, that I could get you know, within that period of time because a lot of professional dancers 
they start auditioning for companies when they're 16, 17 years old. So um, I only trained for four years before I moved to New York City and joined American Ballet Theater. Well, I, I remember like th- there are, if you start when you're six years old, you're considered late <laughs> and you started when you were 13. So tell me about what do you remember about those first couple days at dance in that gymnasium on that basketball court as the introverted child like tell, tell, what does that even look like tell me about that I'm trying to yeah, picture it I mean I um those first few classes on the um at the boys and girls club were really difficult for me um I just still I, I never my my whole childhood felt like I fit in and belonged anywhere and so to be thrust onto this into this class that was so foreign to me, hearing music that I'd never heard before, and having this woman like manipulate my body and put it into positions, there was no mirror. I was the only person in the class that wasn't in a leotard and tights and ballet slippers. I had on socks and shorts and a t-shirt. And so it was just another thing that I was just like, no, like this isn't for me. I don't fit in. And so it wasn't until maybe a week or two later that um, my mother allowed me to go train at at the teacher, at Cynthia Bradley is her name, at her ballet school. I got my slippers and I got a leotard and tights for the first time. And then I just soared. It was the first time that I felt beautiful and I felt powerful and, and, and I felt like I belonged for the very first time in my life for my whole 13 years. Oh, I, I just picture, do you remember when you put on that, do you remember where you were when you put on your leotard and tights and ballet? Like, tell, where yeah. were you at that moment? I remember my, my, my stepfather, Harold, who pretty much raised me. Um, I remember him taking me to go try it on. And there was the local ballet store in San Pedro, California, where I grew up. It's called Alva's. And I remember, I think I still have that first leotard. Um, but I remember putting it on for the first time and just feeling like I... I fit in like I was a part of something that was bigger than me and for whatever reason um I it just was like that leotard and tights became like a second skin and and to this day it still is and it's just so unusual that me as a as a young brown girl going into a very white world the ballet world that I would feel so at home initially mm-hmm. When I first started my training, it was really the first time I felt like this is like a second family to me. And then it would change when I became a professional. So, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit about that because it, it is like, that is, it is a very, it is a, it is a, there isn't a lot of diversity in, in that world. And so to come in, like what, I would imagine you didn't just put on that leotard and then it was smooth sailing. Can you remember some of those, some of those setbacks where that feeling of where you had to then also take control of that feeling of belonging? Um, I think I was a bit more sheltered to what maybe was actually going on in in the adults in the room that were, that had feelings and things to say about the fact that I moved so quickly within my school and in the training. And I was, you know, being accepted into summer intensive programs, you know, like at really high levels, I was accepted into the San Francisco ballet and, and American ballet theater and the Joffrey ballet, like all of these big schools. And when I'd only been dancing for a year and a half and I was given full scholarship and room and board and airfare and all of these things. And I think that my teacher did a really good job of kind of 
not allowing me to know or, or be aware of those conversations. And it really just, it, it gave me an opportunity to just focus on the training, which I, I needed to do because I had so much yeah. to do. So it was pretty, it was a pretty big shock to my system when I was just thrust into New York city at, I think it was like the day after I graduated high school I moved here and was a professional and was expected to, you know, I didn't have that guidance and that protection anymore that I had with my mom or with my ballet teacher. And so it was the first time that it hit me that, um, things aren't going to be this easy. Like people are just going to come up to you and say like, Oh, this, it's a little strange that you're the only black woman in this company. And then, you know, for the first decade of my career, I was the only black woman at American ballet theater. And that's a big, big company. And it's like, um, almost a hundred dancers in the company. So for 10 years to go by and for me to be the only black woman is just, it speaks volumes to where the ballet world was at, especially at that point um, in terms of the lack of diversity, but it really just gave me more of an appreciation and understanding for what I felt my purpose was. And, um, and that it wasn't just about being not just cause being a ballet dancer is all- <laughs> Um, but it wasn't, you know, I just, I just knew that, that I had a bigger purpose for, um, for being in the position that I was in and having an opportunity to have a voice and to have a platform and to represent so many, just by standing on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House. Do you remember, I, I, I was wondering as I was doing my research, as, as I was reading about you and, and thinking back to that performance that I saw, do you remember the moment? Because it is, it's, I mean, ballet by itself is, I mean, they, they put football players Mm -hmm. through ballet training because it is so difficult. Like they're, it is painful. It is mentally challenging. It is physically challenging. And like you said, ballet is difficult enough. So to take it, was there a point or maybe a handful of them, a point. There you go. Um, we're we a moment though. Where you really do you like that? I laugh at my own jokes. See, it's good that we can edit these things out. <laughs> but was there a moment where you that you remember where you realized that this is bigger than just ballet? You have that you are now. This isn't just a ballerina. You are a role model. You are hope for for so many, for so many girls and, and women on so many different levels too. I posted a quick boomerang on my Instagram, um, my daughter's book that said <laughs> doing some research for an upcoming interview. And I had a few of my friends who know ballet and they said, please ask her. And we can talk about this, about, um, you know, her, the whole body image thing, because I've in a lot of the, you aren't shaped like the typical ballerina. So back to the original question, do you remember one of those moments where you realized that this was bigger than just ballet? Um, I think that it was a gradual thing that's, that's, that happened. You know, I, I, once I became a professional, I had a lot of incredible black women that came into my life and really helped to guide me and, and mentor me. And for the most part, they were not ballet dancers. You know, they were, they were very successful women in, in their own fields, but um, it's rare to find a, a brown ballerina at, at, at the level that I'm at, mm-hmm. um, especially then. And so um, I think that it was after, you know, me feeling alone and feeling kind of defeated that in speaking to mentors like um, Susan Faleshill, who was on the board of director of American Ballet Theater, mm-hmm. 
Eat first connected, and Victoria Rowell, who uh, is a, was a pretty big soap opera actress, and she actually started out as a ballerina at American Ballet Theater, and she's a um, black woman as well. And so it was having women like that come into my life that I think allowed me to see like they're guiding me, but I know that I can give to others what they're giving to me. And I think that was like a big shift in the way that I looked at my career. Um, and then having Raven Wilkinson enter my life, uh, it was, it was around the time that I was about to perform the Firebird for the first time. And it was just a very pivotal and critical moment in my career. And, um, to see, my shows sold out and at the Metropolitan Opera House and have more than half of the audience be black and brown people. It had never happened before at the Met. I think it was like in, in those moments that I realized like, this is not even me up here. This is me carrying all of the incredible women that have, the black women that have paved the way for me to have an opportunity to even stand on this stage to do the Firebird. And so, um, that was kind of the start. I would say that night of Firebird was when things really just kind of like were a complete shift in my mind as to like what my purpose was. I wanted to ask you about that night at Firebird um, and, and to have to tie into the question of like, when was one of those moments where you're like, wow, this is real. Like, this is what I've been working towards. Like, this is, this is a real thing. And, and I had read somewhere about that Firebird night. Can you, can you, it sounds like that was one of those defining moments. Can you just, can you just indulge us for a moment? You know, any great performer, you know, we, we, we sit in the audience and watch, but to kind of get that, like, like, what did it look like that day when you walked up to the Met and saw and knew that you were going in and were going to, can you tell us about that night? Yeah. Um, it was, it was, a, there was a lot of emotions happening, not only because of what the significance of that, the performance and the fact that I knew how much of the black community was coming out to the Met for the first time, a lot of them. Wow. Um, and to, and to support me. And, um, but then I also was dealing with an injury, a pretty severe injury that, you know, I was sort of keeping under wraps because I knew that had I, had I let the company and our, and, you know, artistic staff and, and physical therapists know what the severity of my pain, I knew they wouldn't allow me to perform. And so it was a risk that I took because I understood the importance of that night. And I knew that, you know, I, I just kind of said to myself, like, even if this is the last night that I ever perform on the stage again, um, it's going to do something huge for the ballet world, for the for, for my community within the ballet world. And so I understood what that was, you know, what, what yeah. the weight of the evening. Um, so, yeah, I would say that it was just like kind of an emotional night from start to finish. <laughs> I remember the, you know, coming out onto the stage for the first time and, um, I mean, you could just feel the energy in the audience. And as, and as a classical dancer, you know, we can't see the faces in the audience. It's very different from a lot of performances, but it's just kind of a sea of black out there. Um, but you feel the energy. And I came out onto the stage and they were cheering for so long and, and so loud that I couldn't hear the orchestra, um, which was kind of like, well, I don't know if I'm on the music or not, but I'm just going to keep moving and see what happens. Um, but it was just like this palpable, um, pride and love and energy that I felt from, from the audience. And, um, and I've, I've never experienced anything like that 
um, again, it was just, I knew that I was representing so many black women that just didn't get the chance that I do. I mean, I'm just thinking, and that, so yeah, now I'm, I'm thinking back to when I saw you and I'm like, people, we can't, we can't hear what's happening. <laughs> you're like, shh. I'm like, shh, she must have it like in her ear or something. Oh, you just have to like, you know, you have a relationship with the conductor and hopefully they'll, they'll watch you. But sometimes you just have to like go with the flow and catch up and make up for, for time lost or music unheard. <laughs> music unheard. Oh, that's so, but I, I, I think it's interesting as you say this, you know, and, and at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that you never really felt like you belonged. And even when you were there at the basketball court for those first couple of classes, like this isn't right. I don't belong here. And I just think about you that night at Firebird and the people in that room that had never gone into that theater before, that had never thought that they belonged there. And what you gave to all of them that night, I can just imagine how beautiful that was. I'm like getting emotional just thinking about it. It's such an emotional thing. But let's talk a little bit about that injury then. So, so I'm still thinking, I'm like, you're out there, you're dancing. And I know that adrenaline, like you can, you can dance through the pain like that. But what happened? Like the curtain closes. What happened next? Um, I, uh, I knew in my mind that that was the last performance I would, I would do for a while. And so the next morning I went in and I told my artistic director that, um, I couldn't finish the spring season. And, uh, it was a pretty big deal because I still had more shows of, of the Firebird that were sold out. And so many people had flown in from all over the world. Yeah. You know, it was a big deal as a black woman doing that role. And so there's a lot of, a lot of guilt and a lot of things I felt, but I, but I knew that I did what I needed to do and accomplished what I needed to do. Um, and that now I could go, uh, go away and cover and that I had made a mark enough for myself, I think, to be able to come back to. And I think mm -hmm. that was the reason that I did what I did. And, um, I, I ended up having surgery, I think a week later, um, and I had a plate, a plate screwed into my tibia, into my shin. Um, and, you know, I was back on stage, I think within seven or eight months, but I really probably didn't feel truly recovered for like four years. And how, yeah, how do you recover when there isn't time for rest? It's not like you had an easier schedule then. Well, no, I, I, there was no way I could dance. I wasn't dancing for, for the first, you know, however many months seven months or eight yeah. yeah but still there it's just when you have a foreign object in your body there's it's mm. never going to be the same and jumping you know that was what caused it and so uh to this day you know I still deal with that but um I wouldn't take it back I wouldn't do anything differently and you know I think it was two years after I came back from my injury that I was promoted to beautiful dancer which was a a statement all of it's all its own. So let me ask you, have there been any moments where it, you thought about giving up, where it was just too hard, where it was too much, whether the mental, whether ballet, whether the role that you were playing, this barrier breaker, was it ever too much and you thought about quitting? Um, I think that once I got into the place, you know, where I had all eyes on me and all of that, like that, that was not when I felt the pressure or the, the weight of, of being in this position. It was more so, um, 
you know, just before, like I was promoted to soloist when I was a young court of ballet dancer and I felt so misunderstood and I felt not heard. And, you know, again, I was the only black woman in the company and I was just kind of like trying so hard, you know, I was doing everything I needed to do and more and wasn't being given an opportunity to do classical parts. And that was extremely frustrating for me. And, um, and, you know, when you're in a ballet company of, of that, of this level, like ABT, you know, you're not, you're not being babied. You don't have a babysitter. You don't have someone that's guiding you. And so it was really difficult to, to, to kind of um, navigate my own, my own way on my own. And so um, I definitely thought about quitting. I remember talking to like my family about being a DJ and they were just like, what's going on over there? I think we need to come out and help you. Cause I was like, no, I'm, I think that's, this isn't the right career path for me. And they were just like, no. Um, and then I remember, you know, Arthur Mitchell, who, who founded um, Dance Theater of Harlem and was the first black male principal dancer at the New York City Ballet under George Balanchine. Um, he had reached out to me and, and was just such an amazing um, force that really just kind of, um, celebrated me and I, he invited me to come join his company as a soloist and and I definitely thought about leaving ABT um, and you know it was an amazing feeling to be at the Dance Studio of Harlem and surrounded by people who looked like me and not to feel different and to feel like I was a part of of something that um, you know wasn't a thought that I would have to have in my head every day about whether or not what people thought of me uh, you know, and, and then in the end, I think it was just like hearing his words about owning who I am and, and walking into a room and knowing, knowing what I'm capable of and not letting other people tear me down. And then in the end, I was, it was kind of like, you helped me to stay at ABT. I'm sorry. I'm not going to accept your offer, but his words and just that opportunity and, and having that experience with him allowed me to see more clearly what I wanted, and that was to dance with American Ballet Theater, to do the repertoire that they do, and to possibly set a new standard for what a ballerina is. So let's talk about that, what, what a ballerina is. Can you remember moments along your journey where maybe someone told you like that you weren't about like you weren't what a ballerina was. Do you remember those like conversations? Oh, tell tell us. <laughs> um, I think that well, there's one in particular, but it happened a little bit later. A lot again, a lot of the conversation, a lot of those um, those words are just kind of like hidden between you know um, other words that you know. A lot of people, I think, especially if you're not black, you probably wouldn't even think twice about what people are saying. And and that's where I think the body image issues and the race issues kind of are all intertwined. Um, you know, where I think that it's just kind of code language that's being used when you say that. Oh, I'm so sorry, but you just don't have a body for ballet. And in the end, it's really you don't have the skin color for ballet. But that's mm -hmm. an an acceptable thing to say um, since it's a visual art form and it's about your aesthetic but you know my of course I've had you know like most dancers most girls who come into ballet like prepubescent I, I and I hadn't even hit puberty when I was a professional dancer and your body's going to change and um, learning to take care of it and so you know as much as I you know I'm muscular and I'm athletic you know when people see me in person they're often kind of shocked at why it's been such 
a big conversation around my body because they, I've had just so many people say, well, you look like a ballerina to me, you know, like you're in incredible shape. You have the beautiful line and feet like flexibility. And, and it's like, well, that's the proof right there that it's not about my body. It's about mm-hmm. my and that's a big that's a big thing when it comes to black dancers throughout history but I remember being at a club when I was probably like 22 were you DJing were you DJ was that when you were a DJ I never, I never actually DJed no dreams <laughs> someday Misty someday <laughs> one day no. um I was enjoying the DJ's music and I remember um me and my girlfriend she had actually stopped dancing and she was back she was in college and we were out and um and a young man came over and he asked what we did and I told him I was a ballerina and I remember him looking at me and saying you're too fat to be a ballerina or something like that or like you don't look like a ballerina and that stuck with me like it just like weighed on me and in my heart and it was just like this is how so many people think of ballet and see ballet. And I think things, small things like that that happened throughout my life just gave me so much motivation and fire to change the way ballet is perceived and the way it's depicted in film and in television and in the media. And, um, and just to set a positive example when you think of what, what a ballerina is and what a ballerina looks like. And isn't that... Isn't that an interesting, because you didn't, did you know that guy? No, no. I guess that's his way of hitting on me. I don't know. (laughs) That's a nice thing to say, but. (laughs) My gosh, you should have given him dating advice. Like what? But isn't that. (laughs) If you're going to say something like that, but. I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's listening right now. Like, I really (laughs) wish I could go back and do that all over again. But isn't it interesting too, how we can hear random things, like things from random people. Mm -hmm. And, and one of those, so, so let me ask you, how do you, because you get to be commented on all the time and for so many reasons, like for, there's so many, how do you man, and I, I would imagine it's all not all, it's not all flowers being thrown up on the stage at you, Misty. <laughs> so how do you, what do you do when, when the, I mean, I don't know what else to call them, when the haters or even the people that, they're not overt haters, but they're saying those things. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, I've, I have a lot of experience, again, just being the only for so long, um, in, in such a white world and just learning to, um, understand people and, and knowing that most of the time I'm going to give people that I know, and I spend my days with the benefit of the doubt that they're not coming from a place of wanting to hurt me Mm -hmm. and that it's coming from a place of ignorance. And so I've, you know, I've learned throughout my 20 year career now that, um, you know, if you're patient and open with people, then they'll be receptive to learning and not, um, making, not making them feel guilty, um, about their ignorance. And so that's kind of been a way that I've approached the race issue and having those conversations and, and an open dialogue. Um, but the other stuff, you know, when it's, when it's, things that are out of my control and people that I don't know. And just, you know, I just block it out and and I try not to read reviews and I try not to read, you know, or get offended by comments. I I try best as best I can to 
um, kind of go through comments and, and, and if there's a topic that I feel is so important to address, then I will comment on my social media platforms if I know that it's something that um, people can learn from, not necessarily to entertain that person, but just to, to bring up a subject matter. But I've just gotten so much good advice that, you know, most of the time that it's not about you when people have such horrible things to say and when they don't know you that it's, you know, just I keep a small circle of people around me that I trust and I know that have my best interests at heart. I think that's great advice for for anyone, and especially that um, kindness and education. And uh, you're a good you're a good person to you're a good person for this. So let me ask you: We're recording this now. Um, it is still spring. Almost, it feels like summer in New York City, <laughs> which which I don't know. I went outside today, and I, I was like, "Is it raining?" But no, it was just that humid. <laughs> like, like, like the air, yeah, the air is like a physical thing. I was like, oh no, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't gonna work. It's getting ugly. Um, so we, just one question, well, two final questions. One, um, right now when we're recording this, stages are shut down. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about, tell me a little bit about the pivot for mm-hmm. for you. What that means. Yeah, um, it's it's been, I think, kind of a wake-up call for the ballet and dance community, concert dance, you know, people that are in live theater. Um, this is our livelihood, so there's nothing that we can do to make money, really. Um, we don't have a virtual presence, really. Uh, you know, we're one of the oldest art forms that are that is still, you know, flourishing and um, and so for me, I just really see like a silver lining in all of this. I think that it's like a moment for, I think it's dancers and artists because our careers are so short because, you know, it's, it's very youth driven, <laughs> um, that I think it's, you know, we're just constantly in go mode and just like get as much in as you can before, like you're too old and your body can't do what it needs to or used to. Um, and so I feel like, you know, this is a moment for us to like reach, like everything I've been trying to do my whole career is reach more people and bring it to more communities. And if there's, um, ever a way to do it, it's, it's on through the computer, it's through the internet, it's through social media, doing everything that the dance community is being forced to do right now to stay relevant and alive, I think is such a blessing in disguise for us. And, um, and I hope that when we come out of this, that we will continue to learn from what, from this experience and, and, um, and invite more people in that, uh, that don't feel comfortable or don't have the access or the experience, the knowledge, the means to pay for a ticket at the Metropolitan Opera House. Um, but you know, it just, this is what really prompted me to, uh, start the relief fund that I did with dancers, ballerinas all over the world, um, Swans for Relief was to kind of, just give like a a beautiful escape 
um, for people to see these dancers from all over the world that don't even speak the same languages, but speak the same language of dance, which is universal. Um, and to be able to get funds to dancers who don't have jobs right now. Dancers are struggling to get to keep a roof over their head and food on the table. And I know that it's not something that, you know, people are, you know, thinking of, but we're all, we're all going through something in our lives. And, um, and I just want to be there for the ballet community in any way that I can. No, your um, the efforts, where can people go watch the, um, yeah, where can they go see that? It's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Um, you can get all of the information on all of my social platforms, or you can go to um, mistycopeland.com or Misty on point on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, but it's a GoFundMe page, and you can see the full six minute uh, video there of a very uh, iconic ballet variation that's like hundreds, a hundred years old, I think, um, over a hundred years old that 32 ballerinas from 14 different countries are all participating in. And, um, in order to, you know, get funds to dancers in all of our respective companies who, who aren't, aren't receiving money or not enough to survive. And just a fair warning, you will get sucked in. You won't be able to stop watching. It is so, it is so beautiful. Okay, one, so we can find you on social. You have your new book, Bunheads, coming out in September, which I'm so excited about. Ooh, be sure to like, let us know when you're signing and every, like if you have launches here in the city, we'll come. Um, One last question. Who is someone whose story inspired you and they might not know it? The story of Raven Wilkinson, uh, she was the first black, I mean, I, I would say the first black American ballerina, but she was with the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo in the 1950s. And they were a company that toured a lot through the South in, in America. And, um, and she was the first and only black woman in that company. And she ended up leaving and moving to Europe and dancing, which a lot of African-American dancers have done throughout history uh, because it's, it's easier for them there for whatever reason. Um, and she actually left because the KKK were threatening her life when she was touring through the South. So she had, she, she just left America altogether. But I learned of her story from watching a documentary on PBS so many years ago now um, about her story. And it was the first time that I saw myself in another dancer. And it literally just opened up my world to like the possibilities, but also just, it also angered me to the fact that I felt like I was in the same position that she was in the fifties. Um, that I feel like that this is my purpose is to tell so many stories of so many black dancers that people don't know about. Um, I'm working on another book as well. Um, that's the, the history of a lot of different black ballerinas and just to have like our own history book, which doesn't exist. So I have a lot of, a lot of things in the works and I'm, I'm really excited that I can just bring ballet to every platform that I have. Oh, well, you are such a gift. You are a gift to your audiences. You are a gift to all of those people who otherwise uh, wouldn't know about about this sport and about humanity in general, I really believe. So thank you so much for being here with us, Misty. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch and check out all of our previous discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And of course, check out the latest issue of Success Magazine by heading over to success.com slash subscribe and get more inspiring stories like this delivered right to your front door. 
Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes, and you can find me at KindraHall.com or on Instagram at KindraHall. That is Kindra with an I. I can't wait to hear the stories you'll tell. Until next time. Bye.